Um, so if you remember last week, we started our new series in Judges, and uh, it's going to be fun, let me tell you. Um, last week, we kind of unpacked it. I preached for an hour, um, so I'll try not to do that again uh, today. Uh, but last week, we got to jump in and really start to see some of the themes, some of the major motifs that are being picked up in Judges and why they're important. And how there's things that happen in Judges that really is the whole story of the Bible, but kind of writ small for us. It's kind of the macro narrative boiled down into individual, smaller, micro stories. This week, we're going to take a look specifically at the first two Judges. And if you remember throughout the book, there's 12 Judges or leaders total, and there's seven cycles. So you got to understand those are significant terms, right? Significant numbers. That there's 12 different leaders, right? Uh, Mimicking the 12 tribes of Israel. And later in the New Testament, Jesus' selection of 12 apostles, uh, but then also seven cycles. And in, in Hebrew and the Old Testament, seven is always a, uh, a number of completion or wholeness, right? And so today we're going to look at two of them in particular. And one of them is short, uh, and the other one is very strange, okay? So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to see again, this is going to be a broken record throughout the whole series, that Judges is a long, tragic answer to the question that we got to see last week, the question that God poses to Israel in chapter two, which is, what is this that you have done, right? So Judges is 300 plus years of a downward spiral of compromise, partial obedience, kind of cutting corners and ultimately worshiping counterfeit gods or giving their life over to non-gods in replacement of the God who has revealed himself and rescued them. Israel abandons God, part one, God hands them over to the gods that they go after, part two. And then God raises up a deliverer, a judge, a leader to come and rescue them from that oppression. That is the cycle. And it's a kind of a cyclone downward as we go. But as we got to see and introduced ourselves to the major theme of Judges last week, that's not even the most surprising part of this book, right? The most surprising part of this book isn't that people are train wrecks without God. It isn't that we destroy ourselves when we build an identity on anything but God. That's, that's not the surprise. And we're not even surprised that Israel forgets God and goes after other things. But what is surprising is that God continues to actually pursue them. That God does forgive and redeem and bring them back to himself even when they don't deserve it or appreciate it after they've experienced it. And we're going to see the same themes pop out of the first two stories here. So let's go Judges 3, uh, verse 7 through 9 first. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so that's the refrain, right? We're going to see that all throughout the book. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Ash Asheroth. Therefore, we'll get to that in a second. Therefore, because of this, the anger of the Lord was kindled, directed against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rish Hathayim, say that three times fast, king of Mesopotamia. And that name, Cush, by the way, that king's name is doubly wicked, is what that king's name was. So don't know what his parents were thinking. And the people of Israel served Cush eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord then raised up a deliverer a leader for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. And it goes on to describe what this, per, what this uh, leader, Othniel, was like. But if you notice the refrain, it starts, and this is where we're gonna see the seven main cycles throughout the book. It starts with Israel abandoned the Lord. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And specifically, it says that they forgot him, that they forgot the Lord. And this is important for us to remember. 
especially for us on this side of the cross, that a failure to obey God, church, is ultimately a failure to remember. That if when, when, it's when we fail to remember who God is. It's when we fail to pull that back, to pull God's faithfulness and goodness into the present that we ultimately end up going into disobedience. And if you remember back in chapter two, God says, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. Like he's reminding them. He's saying like, remember I did that. Like that was me. I brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, go and live as the people that I have redeemed and rescued and purchased. I did that. And so he's reminding them what he has done in the past to anchor them in the present and give them a future hope because if God always delivers on the promises that he, he says in the past and what he's doing in the present, then he is always going to fulfill what he promises for the future. So it's when we forget who God is that we start to drift into trusting things that aren't God. And so God has to remind them of that and show them that a failure to obey ultimately is a failure to remember. And some of us need to go back to that time. Those of us who have experienced the work of the Lord, those of us who have been saved, who have been changed, who have received life. Some of us, we need to go back to the side of the road that day and remember what God did so that that will just well up and give us life in the present as we move forward. And it's a short story about Othniel. What we do see about Othniel is he's set up as the model leader for the rest of Judges. And if you notice, what's described about him, especially a little bit later about being full of the spirit of God, is that he mirrors Joshua. And so if you remember, the whole point of Judges is, well, when Joshua died, there was no one else to lead us. So then God regularly shows up and raises up leaders. And Othniel is the first one, and he's set up as the model leader. So right from here, from Othniel, it goes downhill from here. Every other judge we're gonna see lacks the godly leadership and kind of that, that spirit of the Lord resting on him like we see in Othniel. And what's really interesting, the little quick phrase that we see about him is that he married Caleb's daughter. And that's important because, and we're gonna see this later next week when we start looking at some of the, the, the uh, uh, female figures in the book of Judges. But what we see in Othniel, is it means that he didn't compromise romantically. Right? So one of the biggest things is that, that Israel goes into these lands and then they start like, well, it's just, I don't know. I mean, I know they're not necessarily, uh, they don't believe what we do, but like, hey, maybe I can change their mind, right? Like maybe I can save them. That would be, so romantically there's compromise here and it always leads to disaster. No different than today. But we see about Othniel that he married Caleb's daughter showing that he didn't personally compromise at all. And it's his leadership integrity personally and privately that leads to health in the nation as a whole collectively. And notice the language used of him is that he's a deliverer. He's a rescuer. And that he saved Israel. And because of this deliverance, because of this rescue, the text tells us that they have rest. The land had rest. It had peace. There was peace for 40 years. Now, this is important because it's not just rest in the land like there's no strife and no more battle and no more war. But actually, it's not just an absence of conflict that we see when there's good leadership here and, and proper worship. Instead, it's actually the presence of peace. It's the presence of shalom, the idea that there's contentment, there's wholeness, there's well-being that's happening here. And the broader message that we see with a model leader like Othniel that leads us to the rest of the book is that idols always promise rest but never deliver. Idols, non-gods, counterfeit gods, Things that would say like, hey, this is where you're gonna get security. This is where you're gonna find safety. This is what is gonna satisfy you. Ultimately, we'll always over promise and under deliver. 
That's why the Lord shows up with a strong hand and delivers them. Because the things that they have looked to and the, the way that they have looked for security and satisfaction in these counterfeit gods and in these other people and leaders and nations, they have not delivered them. They've only enslaved them. And that's the point here. But we see this end really quick. And that's why the, the fact that it's so short is really important because this was very short-lived. As soon as Othniel dies, this rest dies too. And that, again, is hyperlinking us back to Joshua. If you remember when Joshua died, when Joshua was alive, they served the Lord faithfully because of his leadership. But when Joshua died, that was, that was ended. They started to drift and started to slippery slope into all sorts of nonsense, right? And so what we see after Othniel's death is the cycle starts all over again. And this cycle actually lasts a decade longer than the previous one. So that's bad news. And the rest that they receive at the end of this next cycle is actually double the amount. It says it's 80 years instead of 40. So you got to remember when biblical story uses numbers, it's always pointing to something bigger. It's not just telling us facts about history or a historical linear timeline. It's actually using numbers and figures and characters to tell us something more specifically about what God is doing, right? So who's the next one? Well, we see a guy called Ehud. And in uh, verse 12 of chapter three, we see the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then down at 15, this will be up there for you. And here it is. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord again. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Okay, so pause. Every time you see a detail like that, you gotta be like, that's a strange detail. Okay, so, so mark that, we'll get back to it. The people of Israel sent tribute by him with Ehud to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword. Okay, so he's on his way to bring this, this offering, this tribute to the king. And on his way, he builds his own sword. Okay, about 18 inches in length, it says. And he bound it on his right leg under his clothes. Important detail. Keep, rem keep remembering these details. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Again, another detail like, okay, this is interesting. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute to the king, he sent, sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back, underline this, at the idols, where the idols were set up near Gilgal. And he said, king, I have a secret message for you. And he commanded silence and all his attendants went out from the king's presence. And Ehud came to him. And as he was sitting alone in the cool roof of the chamber, so think like a really nice terrace, second floor balcony, beautiful, very relaxing. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud's, uh, Eglon stood up to, take, to, to receive the message. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into the king's belly. And the hilt of the sword also went in after the blade. And the fat closed in over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of the belly. And then dung came out. Mm, devotional. Love this verse. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, he had escaped. The servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, well, surely he is relieving himself, okay, in the closet of the cool chamber, okay? So literally, they're sitting there going, maybe, maybe he's, he's having a poop, okay? And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key, they opened it, and they found their Lord laying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols, and escaped to Sarah. What in the world is going on? 
Well, you have to know right away from first reading, okay, that this is not something you're going to throw on a mug, a coffee mug, or a t-shirt for youth camp. Uh, But these verses are very, very interesting because they're called a literary cartoon. So the idea that there's like really strange, awkward, yet humorous details here, that is the entire point of the story. Okay, it's called a literary cartoon. So think satire. Think Saturday Night Live sketch before Saturday Night Live was a thing, right? This is like Hebrew Night Live, okay? And there's all these details thrown in and we don't have time to unpack it because this is rich. Like this is very, very packed as a story. But remember that anytime we see additional details, if we see a short story followed by a long story with a lot of details, there's something more happening here. So we'll unpack a couple of those and then we'll see what we're gonna do with that this morning. But Ehud, the judge that's raised up as the deliverer, his name, notice that he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. So it says that he's a son of Benjamin. So in Hebrew, it's really, really interesting because it says that he is a son of the right hand, but he's a left-handed man. That's what Benjamin means, son of the right hand. And so there's a play on words happening. There's a bit of irony already. So the original hearers would have been like, wait, this isn't a normal story. Let me lean in and pay attention, right? So there's something that kind of draws their attention. Uh, Later in Judges, you actually see a reference to 700 left-handed warriors from the tribe of Benjamin. So I don't know what it was about the Benjaminites. I don't know if just that they, they trained with their left hand or that they were all born ambidextrous or whatever it was, but this was an interesting detail that was put here. And in the Hebrew about him being left-handed, some commentators have said that it means he was disabled or that he had some kind of maybe paralysis on his right hand, but that's not actually what the Hebrew is doing. The Hebrew is actually saying that he was ambidextrous, that this was intentional. He trained so that he was as versed as a warrior with his right hand as he was with his left. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because most people are right-handed. They were and they still are. And the, right, the side of the right, your right side is the side of honor. That's how you greet it. It's, it's where you put your most cherished guests, right? And that would mean that as a warrior, you would put your sword on your left thigh because you would reach across and you'd pull your sword out, right? Like Zorro, like Zorro, right? But what he did is he trained himself so that he, he put it on his right thigh. So here's the scene. When the guards go and search Ehud before he goes into the private chambers of the king, they only search his left side because that's where swords were hidden. But he cheats the system. He he puts his sword on his right side. They don't even pat him down on that side because they didn't even know that this was a thing. So this is very intentional. This is like this southpaw kind of redeemer that we see pop up in this. Growing up and doing martial arts, especially boxing, a southpaw is when somebody's dominant hand is their left hand. So they'll stand with their right foot forward, which is not the norm. That's like 5% of all fighters. And so if somebody was a southpaw, it really threw you off because everything is backwards. Everything is mirrored. And that's what this text is doing. It's showing us that there's something very backwards. There's something that is reversed about this story. And we need to lean in and pay attention to what's happening here. And notice that this unlikely deliverer, Ehud, this southpaw savior, he was sending a tribute to the king, Eglon. Now this is important because the Hebrew word for tribute is offering. It's a sacrifice. Okay, here's the point. Don't miss this. It's stressing this important, important point for us that idols, false gods, counterfeit gods, they'll start by taking an inch, but they will end up taking a mile. That they will start with compromise, but it ends in slavery. It starts with us just kind of like compromising and cutting corners, but it ends with us enslaved 
needing to offer everything that we have to these to these things, to these objects that we have deemed worthy of our security and safety and satisfaction. That's what it's stressing here. And so he's there giving an offering. And again, the original hearers would be like, no, 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 we don't do that. Like we only, we only give offerings to the Lord. Like that's what, and then they're like, yeah, that's why it's so troubling. What is Israel doing? A little bit of compromise ended up being completely enslaved by this nation, being completely enslaved by Eglon and this kingdom of Moab. And notice with Eglon the king, it says that he's a very fat man. Now this is interesting because in our English, it doesn't quite get there. But um, it, in most of our translations, you'd think, well, it means he was big. He was overweight or he was obese. That's not actually what it, what it is saying. Every other time in the Old Testament, when this term is used, it actually means healthy. It means that there's a sign like he was, he was sturdy. He was beefy, right? He was handsome. He was strong. He was eating good. That, that's the point here. It's just like you look at him, he's like, he was thick with two C's. He was eating really good, right? And also Eglon, the name Eglon, this is crazy. This is going to start blowing your mind. His name is Calf, young bull. That's his name. So remember with the original heroes, uh, hearers of this story, Eglon is a fattened calf ready for slaughter. And Ehud is the one that offers this and the Lord answers it and redeems the nation. Crazy. That's all happening just at the literary level. And this brings us back to the important point that we don't read our Bible literally. If you read this story literally, I have no idea what you could try to come away with, right? You'd have to moralize and principalize and do a lot of weirdness with this to even try to like be like, hmm, 2021, yeah, he was a very fat man. That's so good to my soul, right? No, no, we have to read the Bible literarily. We have to get into the text and actually see what's happening here. And so this is the, this is the whole image and this is the satire of it, is that Eglon set him up, himself up like a king sitting on his second um, tier, second uh, story um, terrace enjoying the cool of the night because he's just killing it. He's just living life. He's living large. And he, but he's actually the fattened calf waiting to be slaughtered to deliver the nation of Israel. And last, last detail before we unpack some stuff and apply it. Another detail that's easy to miss is notice that in verse 19, I told you to highlight it. When Ehud gave the tribute and he goes to leave the town, it says that he turned back at the idols near Gilgal. You caught that? He turned back at the idols. And then when he's escaping after, after King Eglon is, is slaughtered, it says that he passed by the idols. Now these words are so, so significant. When Ehud turns back from the idols, that word in Hebrew is repent. It's the same word for repent. And so there's much more happening in this text. The author is saying that there's something about Ehud, there's something that doesn't sit right in him. That he says, no, no, we can't do this anymore. We can't live giving ourselves over to these, to these kings, to these leaders, to these other objects of worship. So he actually turns back at the idols. He repents of the idols. Literally, that's what the text says. Then after Eglon is taken care of, it says that he passes by the idols on his way out of town while he escapes. This is the same word used in Exodus 12 of the angel of death coming into Egypt and passing through the city, looking for who has put blood on the posts of their, uh, of their doors, the doorposts of their houses as he goes through to slaughter and sacrifice those for the redemption and freedom of Israel. Crazy. Okay, so 
poetically and on a literary level, there is so much happening in this text. And that's just a few details for you. Trust me. Um, if you want to know more and you're a nerd, call me this week. We'll talk more. There's beautiful things happening in this text to show us that it's not just about a fat king. Right? It's not just about a left-handed assassin. There's much more happening here. And it's pointing us to the fact that true repentance, what we see here in Ehud, is remembrance. So what we saw in the story, in the first story with Othniel, is the same thing that's stressed here in the story with Ehud and King Eglon. That true repentance, turning away, has to start with remembering the lengths that God has gone to pursue us and redeem us and save us. And that's what's happening in this story. This story is a celebration of the Exodus. This story is a plea with Israel to remember what God has already done. That's what this story is doing, okay? So how do we make sense of this? How do we apply it? Well, as I've mentioned, Judges is the whole story of the Bible writ small for us, kind of brought down and distilled out. And that story is that non-gods, idols, counterfeit gods always over-promise and under-deliver. And last week we introduced this theme, but we'll come back to it. We'll unpack it a bit more as we go throughout the series. You have to understand that you and I, as we look at our culture today, worship, the idea of worship, isn't a religious activity for religious people. It's not an intentional spiritual thing that we do. It's what we look to and trust in for satisfaction and security. And so everyone worships. There's no such thing as a non-worshipper. We all give ourselves over. We offer our time and energy and life and body into or over to things that promise, that, that entice, that tell us that this will make you happy. That's what an idol is. And many theologians and commentators over the years have, have said that idolatry is the sin beneath the sin. You can't just identify a sin and a behavior or a, or a moral blunder and say that's sin. Ultimately, it starts deeper. It starts in our heart. It starts with cravings and desires and beliefs that we think this thing, this pursuit, this amount of acceptance, this amount of money, this neighborhood that I live in, that these things are going to be the things that finally give us rest. That's the point of this passage. So we have to be careful not to grow overly simplistic or reductionistic in our Christian faith church. We, we have to stop. We have to stop doing that. We have to stop talking about bad things that people do as we have a fetish with kind of sins that are done. Our core problem and anyone's core problem is not that they do bad things. It's that they actually go and live for good things. It's that they go and give themselves over to things that are not God with the pursuit that it will give them what only God can. It's so vital to understand this. So material possessions, good things, family, good, marriage, romance, sexuality, good things, approval, success, good things. We end up looking to them as ultimate things. We end up looking to them for significance and security and safety. It's, it's the pursuit of those things that gives me an identity. That's when a good thing has become an ultimate thing. That's when a non-God has replaced the center role of God. And if you notice, and this is something that we as Christians really need to make sure we understand is that God is not a cosmic killjoy. He actually allows, he, he blesses us with good things, but only so that he can point to his goodness. 
And what idolatry does is it takes the good things and, and just God's kind of utilitarian. It's like, well, he's just like a, a thing that I can use or worship or I'll pray like this, I'll have faith this way. And then I just have enough faith and then the good things will come. In that equation right there, that prosperity mindset, that prosperity theology that is so rife in our, in our Western context, that's not worship of the true God. That's worship of prosperity. That's worship of materialism. That's worship of security and safety and, 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 and money. That's what that is. And God is just the means to the end. My true end is what I worship. That's what's happening here. And Judges makes this point so redundant that it's like ad nauseum, right? Like it gets to the point, like I'm, I'm telling you, I'm gonna repeat myself every week uh, over this series. This is what Judges is doing. And it's just blinking at us with flashing lights over and over again that you underestimate the danger of idols. That you underestimate the desire of your heart, not someone else's, of your heart for immediate gratification over future hope. That you underestimate the danger of independence from God instead of dependence on God. They always will let us down. They cannot bear the weight of the image of God that has been given to us, they cannot and they never will. They were not designed to do that. So the good things can't bear the weight of the human identity. It can't bear the weight of human value and worth. It can't. Those good things cannot because they were never designed to. It's like being over capacity. It's like there's too much weight and it will crumble and it always does. And what's really interesting as, a, as just like a biblical kind of study, Romans 1, when Paul is unpacking the idea of idolatry, um, of us valuing created things over the creator, that exchange that's made, what he says is that we've, in doing that, we've actually exchanged the glory of God for images of created things. What's really interesting about the word glory in the Old Testament is that glory actually means weightiness. Glory means like a weight. There's, there, when, we, when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about substance. We're talking about something so compacted. We're just talking about beauty and power and love and goodness, just so dense that it's heavy. That's his glory, right? And what Paul's doing here is he's saying that when we go and give glory to things that weren't meant to hold us up, they will fill us. They're not meant to carry us. Only God, the one who truly is glorious, is, is enough to bear the weight of our image because we we're created to reflect him in his image. That's the story. Christopher Wright, Old Testament scholar, sums this up. He says, it seems that we never fail to learn that false gods never fail to fail. That is the story of Judges. I remember an interview I saw years ago with Madonna and uh, Sometimes we have to pay attention, church. We have to pay more attention to culture in what culture is saying because when you see things like this, um, it's very important to see that, that people know this. What I just said to you, people know this. This is inherently known. This is the, the grace of God in people's lives, even someone like Madonna. Listen to what she said in this interview years ago. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. Hear that? That always pushes me. I push past one spell of mediocrity, but then I realize I still feel mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something more. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. That's very, very tragic. 
That's very, very tragic to hear someone admit. I mean, first of all, it's, it's brilliant that she has that kind of pulse on what's happening there. But secondly, it's so tragic to hear that realization that she has actually become conscious of that. But that's the same thing. The consciousness to that is the same, th- same way that God leads us to the end of ourself and then comes and raises up a deliverer, Jesus Christ, to give us what we were looking for in all of those things. I remember a similar interview I saw recently with Drake, the hip hop artist, and he was talking about how, you know, sleeping with supermodels and sleeping with a different woman every night is like kind of just his thing now. But then he goes and actually confesses that the most real moments of his life are 15 minutes after that, after he's been done kind of sleeping with whatever supermodel that night, that for 15 minutes after that, he says there's a vacuum. There's a vacuum that is just so empty because he realizes that the pursuit of what he was looking for in that connection actually didn't work. And then he says, after those 15 minutes are gone, I just start to justify again. I just start to kind of remind myself, well, I just pursue the next one or I just move her out of the way and go get a different one or whatever. But you see the consciousness of that? The reality that there is no thing, nothing, There is no person, there is no romantic relationship, there is no church, there is no community of people, there's no cause, there is no leader, there is no friend, there is no person that can live up to all of your and my expectations. It's impossible. Our church will let you down. I will let you down. Other people that we look to and idolize and think that they are just the cat's meow, they will let us down. And if we don't know about it, they already are. That's the point. It's there that our idols are exposed. It's in the fear of losing the things that we have tied our lives to, that we have attached ourselves to, that we find where our idols actually are. So why in Judges do they fall for it over and over and over again? Why do you and I fall for this over and over and over again? Well, to answer that, we have to see in Israel what was so attractive about the Canaanites. Because we see this over and over again, right? We're just like, so what, what was the big deal? Why, as a nomadic people wandering in the desert, is Israel so quick to abandon all of that and just run after everything that's central to Canaanite culture? Why? Well, I, the, the Bronze Age of Canaan was a very impressive metropolis, Like we're talking about urban centers. We're talking about kind of Abu Dhabi level, right? Like we're talking about Vegas. We're talking about Chicago. We're talking about just the wonder of urban centers, just the bright lights and the activity and the energy. And for Israel, remember, they're just dusty footed nomadic desert people, right? And so they come into Canaan and they're like, that looks good. Look at that. Look at that meat. Look at that steak. Look at that woman, right? Like, remember, they're just wandering in the desert and they show up and they're like, wow. They're, they're walking around Canaan going, this place is legit, right? So it's, it's undeniable that, that Canaan and the Canaanite urban centers had much superior everything on the surface level than Israel did. They had superior art. They had superior literature. They had superior architecture, trade. They had superior political systems. They had superior wealth. But here's the key. We see it over and over again. It was also a very highly sexualized culture. And their sexualization was directly tied to their religious worship, okay? So there was a key tie for them between, listen to me, sexual freedom and sexual expression and personal happiness and prosperity, okay? So you noticed that it mentions two names, Baal and Ashereth, 
right? He mentions these two. Now listen, Baal, if you remember the golden calf, that's what Baal was. Baal was kind of um, symbol- symbolically uh, wrapped up in the calf. So that's, that's been this idol God that's been following them the entire time since Sinai, right? And Baal is just a Canaanite word for Lord. And he was known as the God of rain, the God of fertility. And Asherah was the female deity. So Baal was the male, uh, Asherah was the female deity of fertility. And what they did is they had sexual intercourse. So the male deity, Baal, fertilized the female deity to produce a fruitful harvest. So that was the idea. And then they used temple prostitutes. So they literally had worship services to reenact this exchange, this sexual intimacy between Baal and Asherah to secure prosperity for them. It's not much different than we see in Rome. It's not much different than we see in Babylon. All throughout scripture, we see this close tie between sexual expression and sexual freedom and a promise to be prosperous and be fulfilled. Now, before we say about them, about Canaanites, before we say about Canaan, wow, how twisted. Man, man, they were, they were messed up. That's crazy. Remember church that we live in a culture. We live in a whole society that is given over to the pursuit of sexual expression, however we define it, and personal achievement wherever we think we're going to find it. The teleprompter of our culture, the sermons that are constantly preaching at us is that sexual expression without the consequences that come with it or the judgment because, well, it's my body, it's my life, what I do with my body and my life is up to me, is that we end up with this message that goes through every area of culture. And here's what's even crazier about that is that you're looked at as subhuman. Like you're not even looked at as a human being to use restraint or self-control when it comes to sexuality. If you pursue purity in any way and you're not just completely unchained as a sexual being, then it's like you must be oppressed. You're subhuman. So we see virgin shaming in our culture. And we see that youth, young, young women especially, go and get rid of their V card just so they can get rid of this burden of being a virgin. And you have to understand that we didn't just get here by mistake. And this has always been a problem for sure, but we're living in a cultural moment where this is so highlighted that we make Canaan look like child's play. That in the wake of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, where we see the development of contraception and the distribution of the pill, and we see the beginning of tax-funded abortion, all developed, all of those are developed in the name of safe sex, of protecting us from the consequences of sexual freedom and sexual expression. And in reality, what happened in the sexual revolution is we see a complete reversal. Why? Well, because we never know how to actually balance something. So the pendulum just swings all the way over. And what we see in the sexual revolution to today is a massive overhaul, church, a massive moral and ethical shift of tectonic plates under the ground of our culture. And sexuality shifted from what you do in a certain relationship to who you are, to freely express yourself sexually is what makes you a person. It's what makes you human. And all this movement did for us and led us to where we are today with the brokenness that we see, with the abuse that we see, is all it did is provided some insurance policy for our sexual expression and our autonomy. In the pursuit of freedom and sexual freedom, we become more enslaved than, than ever. And I don't have time to show you all the data behind that. This isn't just a Christian perspective. This is, a, this is just data, this is just science showing us how broken, how twisted, how lost, how empty we are 
because we have run after sexual freedom and pleasure as if it was the thing to tell us who we are. And so all it did from the, from the 60s to now is we used this idol of sexual expression and autonomy to remove any kind of inconvenience from our life, like unwanted pregnancy or STIs. And we got to just encourage unrestrained sexual expression, casual sex, just two bodies, that's all it is. Just a recreational activity without committed relationships and we just perpetuated all of that. So church, what's the result of that? Well, millions of young people, boys and girls are trafficked to fulfill this need. They are put on the altar of this God of sexual freedom and expression. The porn industry reinforces sex as recreation. Millions and millions of image bearers are aborted murdered so that we can continue to pursue sexual freedom and pleasure without any kind of restraint or consequence. That's where this has led us. Trevin Wax in his book, This Is Our Time, reflects on this and says this, listen, sums it up so well. Today, many people see sex as the release of desires that make up the real you, the authentic self. And when an entire generation believes the purpose of life is to discover who you are, and express that to the world, then suddenly sexuality becomes an important piece of the puzzle to life. To refrain from healthy sexual urges is to harm yourself, to dampen your expression of who you are. To call into question other people's sexual behavior is to actually oppress them. He goes on. This is the, the retort, the response, the Christian response. But we put sex in its place, not by saying sex isn't a big deal, but by telling people you are so much more than your sexuality. We will not reduce our human self-understanding and self-expression to sexual urges. The church must elevate sexuality when the world diminishes it. And the church must knock the legs out from under sexuality when the world exalts it. Church, this is the day we're living in. And he wants to start inside the church. He wants to start with us, but this sermon is not even about sex. This text isn't even about sex. It's about the self. This is not because sex is at the center of our culture. Sex isn't. Sex is just one way that we express self-actualization. And this isn't new either. This hyperlinks us all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Genesis. It's always been the case. Same lie in the garden that all you gotta, you gotta be God. Like that, that's why God's holding out on you so that you don't experience this actualization, this self-creation, that you can be anything you want. It's the same life from the garden that has followed us here. But we were created to know God and be known by God. And it's in knowing God that we actually know self. That's how things get inverted. And things break down in the garden just like they break down for you and I today. Things break down when self-actualization happens independent from God. It's when we decide we're gonna pursue life and fulfillment and satisfaction and security independent from God. So rather than enjoy life under God's rule as image bearers of him, we build a self-image. We go and we build it. We construct it ourselves. We go and create something independent from God. And ultimately that tragic exchange is that sin dethrones God and enthrones self and in the process destroys everything. So don't miss it that I'm not just railing against this because sex has become, sex isn't the problem. The problem is that the centerpiece of the modern Western culture is you. It's me. It's self. It's self-esteem. It's self-image. It's self-fulfillment. 
It's self-actualization. It's self-help. It's self-empowerment. It's self-love. Church, it's everywhere. And what happens is the self becomes the functional idol of our day. So what we do is we go through our daily life innocently. We just go through our daily life. We make decisions as individuals. We prioritize what we want to consume, what we like. We prioritize personal desires and interests. It means that we go and we decide where we live, what job we get or don't get, where we spend our money, how we spend our money, what we do with our time, what we do with our body based on how it will impact me. Sociologists call this expressive individualism. So it's not just individualism, it's now expressive. So everything about my life is put there to to build up and reinforce this image of myself. So we go about life trying to find truth and meaning and purpose by looking where? Not outside ourselves, because that's oppressive. We look inside ourselves because that's true and authentic. Are you with me, church? Are you hearing it yet? And there was a radical shift. And here's the thing. If you were to ask our grandparents, okay, my grandparents, about their job selection, their career, okay? My grandparents didn't actually even make it out of middle school, but that's because they had to go work. But if you ask them, if you're like, okay, you know, a steel mill, a steel mill worker, you're like, hey, sir, uh, are you satisfied and fulfilled in your job? Do you feel like it's really expressing yourself to the full potential? They wouldn't even understand the question. There would be such a disconnect Because a job being fulfilling 40 years ago meant I'm caring for things outside myself. Like like I'm caring for my family. I have bread on the table for my kids. Like it's fulfilling because it's outwardly focused. Whereas today, we make every decision, including career, including where we live, including what we do with our life based on, does it fulfill me? And church, I'm not saying God doesn't want us to ask that question, but when that question becomes primary, we lose everything. And we saw that from the 1980s onward. I mean, I'm an 80s baby, so I, got, I, live, I grew up in this. And my parents had to work really hard not to make my life about boosting my self-esteem. And if you look, education and parenting books and sports and recreation and everyone getting a gold medal, regardless of how terrible they are, it's all built around self-esteem. And then, and then it just becomes commonplace. Do anything you want to. You can do anything that you put your mind to. You can be anything you want to be. Do whatever works for you. And then that is backed by the law of attraction, which by the way, is still rife in the church today. No wonder the secret sold so well because you had a whole bunch of 80 baby, 80s babies as young adults. And then they sold us the secret because it told us that what we put out there is what we attract back to ourselves. because our entire life we were told that it's about you. Church, that's why we're here. And the result, it's killing us. It's killing us. It's crushing us. It's depressing us. It's oppressing us. That's what we're seeing. You know why? Because if your life is made about you and your self-esteem, you will never match up. If everyone is special, church, no one's special. You with me on that? Do you know what kind of performance anxiety You know what kind of weight and burden of achievement that puts on an entire generation, an entire generation that is now left without a healthy sense of self and understanding who they are and what it means to be human. So with no future purpose or goal at all, what do we do? Well, we live for the here and now. It's because it's about me, what feels good, what looks good, what I want. And it's deceitful and it's a lie. Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, I just finished it this week. It is brilliant. 
He says, when teleology, that's just fancy nerd for future. When future purpose is dead, he's talking about our cultural moment, and self-creation is the name of the game, then the present moment and the pleasure that it can give me becomes the key to eternal life. Church, it's everywhere. It's in our music, it's in our film, it's in our media, it's in our education system, it is everywhere. But it's not just out there. It's not just out there in the culture. Self also determines much of what the church has done over the last 30 years. Much of Western evangelicalism is built on an idolatry of the self. And it's very subtle. It's extremely subtle. And that's why it's so dangerous. Because God quickly becomes a means to an end for me to get what I actually want. And when we're honest with this, we can find it pretty quick as to how I've made my relationship with God really about me really about my own self-fulfillment, really about my own self-actualization. God just becomes something or someone I use to get what I truly want. So even spiritually, how that shows up, we pray, we read our Bible, we serve, we show up, we attend Christian stuff, we give a little bit of our money because other stuff's actually more important. We we try to be nice and try to be a good Christian, but really all of that is self-serving. Our relationship with God becomes about me, becomes about my doubts and my questions and my skepticisms and my struggles and my marriage and my flaws and my money and house and career and kids and family. That Christianity can be built around that, and it is. You know what we're left with? An excessive self-focus and a preoccupation with what God or the church can offer me and my family. And church, we gotta root this stuff out. If we don't pull this stuff out, and I, th- I think COVID's a perfect time to pull this stuff out because loss is the greatest teacher. Not, not gain. You don't learn. Man, when you're killing it, you don't learn. It's when you lose that you learn. Like loss is the greatest teacher. That's what's really important here. And we've, we've lost some things right now. We've lost some privileges. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you have lost your livelihood. Some of you have lost your family members. Like, like loss is the greatest teacher and God is not deaf to the reality that we're, that we're living right now. He's not gonna waste this season for us. And I think we have to be very careful that we don't use this season to just point outwards at everyone else and not take time to sit and say, what idols are creeping in my heart? What things are fighting for my affection and my full, total devotion to the Lord? Eugene Peterson makes this connection for us and then we'll apply this. Listen to this. Do we realize how almost exactly the Baal culture of Canaan is reproduced in our church culture? Baal religion is about what makes you feel good. Baal worship is a total immersion in what I can get out of it. And of course, it was incredibly successful. This is important, listen to this. The Baal priests could gather crowds that under, outnumber followers of Yahweh 20 to one. They had, bigger, they had bigger crowds. There was sex, excitement, music, ecstasy, and dance. We got statues, we got girls, we got festivals. And what did the Hebrews have to offer in response? The word, the word of God. The minute we start advertising the faith in terms of benefits, we're exacerbating the self problem. With Christ, you're better, stronger, more likable, and you'll enjoy ecstasy, but it's just more self. Instead, we want people to get bored with themselves so they, they can actually start looking at Jesus. Church, that is so prophetic. He wrote that a long time ago. But that is just speaking right into our day. If there's one thing I wanna serve you with 
And there's one thing that I know that I want to continue to just do for you as our church is make you get so bored with yourself. Make you get so bored with us. Make you get so bored with this church that you are just so in love with Jesus because when that happens, guess what? You're going to love his church. You're going to serve his church. You're going to serve others. You're going to get into community. You're going to grow. You're going to repent and confess sin. You're going to become more. You're going to be renewed into the image of Christ. So the paradox of all of this church, and here's what we'll do. We'll just sum it up here. The paradox of all of this is found in Jesus's invitation in in Luke 9. Listen to this. Luke 9, it'll be up there for you. Jesus says, to all, he said to all, if any of you wants to come with me, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross daily and follow after me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. How do you profit? What do you gain? If you gain the whole world, but you lose and destroy yourself in the process. Church, this couldn't be more relevant today. That our culture has it completely reversed, completely backwards. That a healthy self-image is not found inside yourself, but outside yourself, starting with who God is. And when we image bear what we were created to reflect, everything gets, what we weren't created to reflect, everything gets twisted. Everything gets ruined. Everything gets destroyed in the process. So culture has it completely backwards. The irony in this is that ironically, loving God is actually the truest form of self-love. Loving God is how you love yourself because it's in loving God that we find true satisfaction. It's in loving God that we find contentment. It's in loving God that we find out who we are and what we were created for and ultimately life. And so the tragic exchange that we see is that when we play God, when we believe the lie of the garden that we can be like God, we actually become less human. It's when we worship counterfeit gods that we reduce the image of God within us. Idols actually come and distort and diminish our humanness. Idols distort our dignity. Idols distort our value and our worth. But Jesus, the image, the imprint, the very nature of God in humanity has come to restore our image. That's the great exchange. The tragic exchange of the garden is that when we play God, we actually distort the image that God has created us to be. But Jesus comes and restores and renews that image. And that's the invitation here. That's the invitation that Jesus gives to all in Luke 9. And notice that he says, like, come with me. Like, let me come with me and let's go do this together. Do you know where Jesus is going? He's chapters away from going right to the cross. And so church, we have to understand the important point of this is that a new life, a new you, is only found for those who die to their old life and die to the old you. Resurrection is only for the crucified. New life only comes to those who let go and, and, and literally just let go of their entire old life. Not hold on, not compromise, not partially, but fully let go of all of the ties, of all of the attachments, of all of the things that they thought would give them security and happiness and satisfaction. And then secondly, Jesus says, deny yourself. In the Greek, this is really strong. It's very strong. It, it's forget yourself. It, it's, it's give no thought to yourself, okay? Imagine, like, how prophetic is that? Like, like, how strong is that today? Give no thought to yourself. Yeah, but, but I, 
I mean, I live every day giving all thoughts to myself. It's like, yeah, well, Jesus is like, no, no, forget yourself. Don't even, don't start there. Don't start with yourself because you start with yourself, you lose everything. Instead, he says, don't just deny certain things. Don't just put off some things, but he says, lay down personal control of your life and entrust it to me. That's the invitation. Um, Eugene Peterson in the message translation here, um, sometimes poetically just captures it beautifully, but he says, anyone who intends to come with me, Jesus is saying, has got to let me lead. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way. It's my way to finding yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want, but lose the real you? Church, that's the authentic self. And in verse 25, when Jesus says that in Luke 9, he's saying like, what good is it to gain everything for yourself, but then lose yourself? Whoever tries to deliver themselves, like we see in Judges, will only destroy themselves. That's the, that's the point. And the paradox is that it's when we resist the cultural sermon, brothers and sisters, it's when we resist this cultural sermon, that life is about you, that it's about your image, that it's about your body, that it's about your beauty, that it's about your money, that you'll experience life. It's when we resist that, that we experience life. It's when we lay that down that Jesus says you're finally getting it. So we need to realize that any message, any worldview, any perspective that puts you at the center and, and encourages a preoccupation with yourself or your self-image or what you look like or what you believe or how you feel or what you want or what you think you need is contrary to the gospel. So you're not white or black. You're not Baptist or Pentecostal or Anabaptist or Reformed or any other ism or theological tribe-ism that we want to throw on that. You're not single or married. You're not conservative or liberal. You're not any of those things. Those are not labels that define who we are. We put those down. We don't have those as a primary identifier for who we are. And the amazing part of this invitation, and this is the beautiful part of the gospel that we need to see over and over and over again, is that Jesus is saying, seek me first and the rest will be taken care of. Like, like I will take care of you, but you just gotta let me. Like you actually have to abandon and put down everything else. And then I am gonna take care of you. Like, like you want your authentic self? Well then let go of defining your authentic self. You wanna actually be fulfilled? Let go of self-fulfillment. You, you, you want real power? Let go of self-empowerment. You want help? You want care? You want to be healed? Let go of self-help. Let go of self-care. Let go of all of it. And Paul makes the same point in Colossians chapter three when he says, put off the old self and all of its practices, all of the lifestyle that went with that and put on the new self, which is being renewed. That's in the present tense. It's being renewed constantly after the image of its creator because Christ is all and in all. That's what true worship does. That is how we actually are renewed by saying that Christ is all, that Christ is all and he is in all. And then Jesus finishes this and he says, take up your cross, take up your cross, not his. He's gonna bear his because his is actually for us. He's saying, take up your cross. He's saying, put down, right? Like, like put off. Now there's, there's no comfortable way to carry a cross. You with me on that? And you can't carry a bunch of stuff and your cross. That's the point of this exchange. Jesus is saying, put down everything else you've been carrying, all of the burdens, all of the hurt, your past, your present, all of the things you're working through, struggling with, all the things that you're fighting to just, to just get away from so that you can actually give your full attention and attach yourself to Jesus. He's saying, put all of that down. Whatever you're trusting, and, and trust me, whatever your plans are for my plans, 
Trust that I'm enough. Trust that I'm not done with you. Trust that I will finish what I started. Pick, pick, pick that up and come with me. And it's here that we do see that loss is the best teacher. So church, here's what we can do. Not just look at this as a problem out there. Not just look at this as a problem with, with Israel in Judges. We're like, oh man, they're, they're really messed up. It's like, no, no, but this is, this is the, the danger. This is the creep of idols in our heart. This is the creep of, we, you look at your week, you look at your life right now. What does it revolve around? Actually, not theoretically, because you can look kind of cool or Christian or whatever, but like, what does it actually, look at your week. Where did your time and energy go? What were you attached to this week? Truly, identify those. And also identify your fears. Identify your excuses. When, when you hear me say that Jesus is just saying, hey, put it all down. Trust him with everything. What, what pushes back in your heart? Where do you see kind of like a little bit of a knee jerk? Like, oh, I, I don't know if I can do that. Where do those fears come out? Where do those excuses come out? Because you start to answer those questions and you'll start to expose your idols. Oh, well, I, I, I could do that, Jesus, but I have bills to pay. Well, I mean, I could, but I, I, don't, have, I don't have time. Or uh, I don't know, I still have a lot of questions. Or you know what, Jesus, I'll follow you. Like I will, but first let me fill in the blank. First, let me get married. First, first, let me graduate. First, let me finish this like milestone in my life. First, let me get rid of my debt and buy a house. First, well, well hey, maybe when I'm less busy or maybe when I settle down, whatever that means. I don't know anybody who's ever like gotten to their life and be like, oh, good, I'm settled now, right? Maybe when I quit that habit or I get rid of that. Jesus is like, no, 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 none of that. Lay all of that down. Because all of that is really just saying, I'll trust you, Jesus. Maybe I'll trust you one day, but it's not today. So church today, right now, for you and I, like, like we need to be renewed now. For those of us who already are following after Jesus, we need renewal now. We need to invite the Lord to actually continue to tear out idols that would fight for our heart allegiance to him. And for those of you who have not yet trusted and put your faith in Jesus, this is the invitation. The gospel is not information. The gospel is not information about a Jewish rabbi. The gospel is invitation to experience life through the work of that Jewish rabbi, Jesus Christ. So today, I'm gonna pray, but here's what we'll do. I want you to just pray that you will recognize some of these idols, that you would recognize what you are attached to, that you will recognize the things that are really fighting for, for, for first place, fighting to be supreme and central in your life. And then, like we see in Judges here, turn away. Turn away from them and replace them so that we actually see Jesus as worthy of our affection, worthy of our life because he is trustworthy. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that since the garden, you have been pursuing us. You've been chasing us down with your love so that you would just convince us and convict our hearts that in these things, Lord, the things that we run after, the things that so easily day to day consume us and take our time and our energy and our, our mind and our thoughts and our desires, that they will not bear the weight of our identity. I pray now that Jesus, you would just become more central. I pray that we would just see you bigger right now that we would respond to this invitation to, to identify what these things are and take up our cross and come after you, Lord. And that it, it's through that, Lord, that we would die to self so that we would really learn who it is that we are because it's found in you. I pray for a renewed clarity 
in all of us for that. I pray that we would get bored with ourselves. We get bored of the trinkets and all the things that culture waves in front of us and tells us that we should be living for, that we would get so bored with them because we will be so enamored and captured by you. So Lord, I pray that you would do that work in our heart. I pray that it would change us individually, but I pray that it would change our church. I pray that it would change our city. We give this to you and ask it for your name and for your fame. In Christ's name we pray, amen.